Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 312 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Today on the show, we'll be discussing the new movie Solo, A Star Wars Story, about the early years of Han Solo, Chewbacca, and Lanto Calrissian. And this will involve spoilers for everything in the movie, so just be aware of that. And I'm joined by three guests. So first up, we've got Rajan Khanna, making his 10th appearance on the show. He's the author of the post-apocalyptic novels Falling Sky, Rising Tide, and Raining Fire. And his short fiction appears in magazines such as Lightspeed, Shimmer, and Beneath Ceaseless Skies. His articles have appeared on Tor.com and LitReactor.com. So Raj, welcome to the show. Thanks. Thanks for having me back for my fourth Star Wars podcast. <laughs> Then next up, we've got Erin Lindsay, making her ninth appearance on the show. She's the author of the Bloodbound series of epic fantasy novels from Ace, as well as the Nicholas Lenoir series of historical paranormal detective novels from Rock, which she writes under the name E.L. Tetensor. Her historical mystery, Murder on Millionaire's Row, will be published by Minotaur Books in October. So, Erin, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me back. And also joining us today is Matthew Kressel who you may remember from our panel on Blade Runner 2049 back in episode 277, and our panel on Jewish science fiction back in episode 172. He's the author of the novel King of Shards, and his short story The Last Novelist, or A Dead Lizard in the Yard, has been nominated for the Nebula Award and is a finalist for the Yuchi Foster Memorial Award. Together with Alan Datlow, he hosts the monthly Fantastic Fiction Reading Series at the KGB Bar in New York. So, Matt, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me back. Okay, so I want to start off with Raj, because Raj, I feel like you told me one time that you grew up wanting to be Han Solo. So am I remembering that right? And uh, could you just talk about the kind of influence that Han Solo has had on you? Sure. Uh, I don't know that I felt like I wanted to be Han Solo, but he was definitely the character that I loved most from the original trilogy. And I was, you know, I'm right in that age bracket where when Star Wars came out, I think I was four when it came out, but then it became the kind of central focal point for toys and merchandise for the next, you know, however many years. So it kind of hit me pretty hard. And um I really didn't, you know, Luke was okay, but Han Solo was, to me, everything um in those movies. Han and Chewie. I, I like Chewie as well. So um so this when I heard about this movie, it was a really interesting thing because uh, I originally didn't want anything to do with it. I didn't want them to do it. I thought it was a bad idea. Um just because I have very strong feelings on the character. And what are those strong feelings? I just, I mean, you know, it, it seems a little weird because, like, it is, this is, like, my number one fandom, and Han Solo is, like, the one character out of maybe a handful who, you know, I, I'm a little bit obsessed with. Like, I think he's cool. I, you know, I, I, I love the swagger. I love the humor, which I think is an important part of the character. And... I kind of think he he helped kind of bring that world to life a lot more. Like, I think if you took Harrison Ford out of Star Wars or especially Empire, Star Wars wouldn't have as big an impact, at least on me. Um, you know, he, he brought something to it that I think almost fought against, I think, what Lucas was trying to impose upon the movies. You know, the, the famous I love you, I know line was an improvisation that, Lucas hated, but they kept in the movie because test audiences loved it. And to me, like that is one of the defining lines in that movie. So, you know, I think specifically he 
added an element of roguishness and humor and kind of just life to to that whole trilogy. I mean, the third movie is a, a bad Han movie, The Return of the Jedi, but um, otherwise, I I just you know the ship is cool. He's the pilot. You know, he's like the the and he he's I love gray characters. And I mean, I know he ends up being a good guy, but like the fact that he's a criminal, a scoundrel. Um, to me is more interesting than somebody who's a goody two-shoes. When he grounds it, right, he's sort of the everyman character who doesn't believe in the Force and thinks all this stuff is kind of, you know, silly, and that brings a level of reality to it that you really miss in, you know, episodes one through three, where everybody is like a Jedi or a senator or something and takes themselves very seriously, and yeah, I think that's... Yeah. And I think, you know, he's obviously flawed. Like, he doesn't believe in that stuff that's happening right in front of his eyes, you know? And he's lived this kind of hard life where he has a scrounge. But I think that also makes him more human, you know? I mean, Luke has a hard life, too. But then all of a sudden becomes, like, the chosen one in the galaxy to bring back the Force. So, you know, essentially, I don't know. Honda's always felt more real to me. Yeah. Well, and so, Matt, one reason I wanted to get you on this panel is because you played a smuggler in our pen and paper Star Wars role-playing game that we were doing with Matt London. So it's just oh, yeah. what sort of connection. <laughs> Do you have a special connection with smugglers or Han Solo or anything like that? Um, not a, like, not, I don't think I, I was like Raj where I just, he was my favorite character necessarily. I, I mean, I think I just love the whole original uh, trilogy. So um, I used to pretend I was sick so I could stay home from school and then just I had the trilogy on video cassette and I would just watch it like that was, that was my <laughs> thing so um yeah I mean Han is just uh like Raj said he's just such a, like a, a fun character and he, he is grounding and I and I think like even though like Obi-Wan is sort of this like I guess if if you consider Obi-Wan to be like the grandfather like figure then then to me Han at least growing up was sort of like kind of a father like figure and and I and I think that you know growing up with the series, um, you know I have this emotional attachment to him as a character. So it was cool to revisit that in this film. So when you say he's a, because I thought you were about to say that he's like a big brother figure, but you see him more as because he seems like kind of a bad father. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, big. Yeah, I guess it, a big brother could work too. I mean, he's definitely like not such a great role model. But at the same time, I think that's what makes him interesting. That's what makes him, uh, you want to know more about him. And, and, you know, his, his charm is partly in, in that he's mysterious. Mm. How about Aaron? Are you a big Han Solo fan? Uh, I am a very big Han Solo fan. I definitely wanted to be Han Solo growing up. That, I mean, he was by far my favorite character. Um, he's a space pirate which I think enough said right there. But he also, I mean, it's interesting to sort of um, listen to the discussion about him as a father figure, because I, I mean, just when, when Rajan was talking, I was thinking about sort of the space that he occupies in the narrative, which is to some extent an unusual one in that, you know, you have the, the young generation of newbies who don't really know what's going on and are just being schooled into the world. And then you have the old generation of sages and those roles are occupied in all of the films. And you, you've got your Yodas and your Obi-Wans and your Qui-Gons, and then you've got your newbies, but you Han occupies a space in between those two things. He's crusty and experienced and cynical, but not in the ways of the force and not 
in, in this dynastic struggle that's taking place um, b- between the empire and the rebellion. You know, he's sort of been on the periphery of that. So I kind of liked that, that, that he brings an entirely new, um, a new perspective to the narrative that's somewhere in between this farm boy who doesn't know what's going on and this old man who knows everything about what's going on. Um, but also I just, I mean, I, I love old school Harrison Ford. I think he brought so much to that role and so much of the, the dry wit that is Han Solo as we think of him was really something that, that Harrison Ford brought to the table. And it, I mean, if, if there's a better action movie line, then there wasn't time to put it through committee. I mean, I absolutely love that line and I laugh every time. And I don't know if that one was improved, but, but it's, it's very much Harrison Ford's sense of humor, or at least the sense of humor that comes across on the rare occasions when you see him participate other than grudgingly in an interview. <laughs> well, yeah, I was going to say that, you know, yeah, he really brings that, like, I don't give a shit attitude to the character because that was actually a Harrison Ford's attitude was like exactly. I don't give a shit and I don't think that would have you know if you, any other actor would not have had that same you know brought that same uh, color to the character but so um so Raj was saying that he had misgivings about this whole project uh how do you feel about that Aaron were you looking forward to this or were you kind of like uh what are they doing no I was leery for sure um I wasn't necessarily I was a little bit leery in principle just because um, it was a bit like watching somebody watch a, walk a tightrope without, uh, without a safety net. You thought, you know, this is a very bold choice and there are so many ways that it could go wrong tackling one of, you know, not just a, a one of, one of the OGs, but like for many people, the, their favorite character um, tackling him in a, in a prequel was, was a bold choice. But also I just, the trailer I didn't find the least bit engaging. Um, so I went in with very low expectations. I think like a lot of people, I had trouble recasting Han Solo in my head. Um, and, and that was a barrier. And so I really did go in with fairly low expectations. Yeah. I mean, I definitely went in with low expectations because yeah, I, like, like you guys, I, I, I didn't see why there needed to be a young Han Solo movie particularly. And then there was all sorts of stuff about how the production was really troubled and they brought in, uh, you know, Ron Howard to sort of try to straighten everything out. Um, and, uh, and then the reviews, it was about 70% on Rotten Tomatoes when I, when I went and saw it. So I, I had pretty low expectations going in. And I have to say, I, I thought it was really fun and really funny. Um, I mean, there's a lot of things that I, um, you know, a lot of issues that I have with it, but I, I, I was actually planning to go see it again this morning, but it's just, it's not playing in the morning anymore. I think probably because, mm-hmm. uh, you know, hasn't done so well so far, as I understand. But uh, you know, I liked it enough to to want to go see it again. Um, but how about Matt? What did you? Uh, what were kind of? What did? How did you kind of feel going into the movie? And what were your overall impressions? Well, I I think uh, like Aaron said and you said, I I was uh, I had very low expectations. I I went in kind of skeptical. I, I thought the the trailer looked okay, but you know you can cut a trailer to look like anything these days. So. You know, I, I just went in with absolutely no expectations and just said, okay, tell me a story. And I, I came out pleasantly surprised. Uh, I saw it with my wife and we both said, yeah, you know, that was really fun. Um, I definitely thought that there were a few places in the film that didn't quite work, but they were small enough that it didn't affect my overall enjoyment of it. And I came out and I was like, huh, 
that was that was better than I thought. And how about Raj? Overall thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I have a very nuanced feeling about this movie. You know, it's not simple. I liked it or I disliked it. I generally enjoyed the movie. Um, I thought, and again, I think it's weird because my expectations were low and then they got higher and then they kind of fluctuated. But so I don't know that if they affected me at all, but I generally had a good time. I think there were two major issues that I had with the movie. And other than that, you know, I, I can let it go. Um, I don't think that I needed everything in the character's backstory to be explained to me in a movie. And I thought that that seems kind of, I don't know. It, it, it I understand why they did it, but I, I don't know that I wanted that from a movie. But the way that they did it was actually mostly pleasing to me. So, I mean, I really only had two issues. Um, and one of them was Han. And I think that's, you know, a difficult thing to put, cast somebody else into a role that is pretty much iconic around one specific person. Um I think he did a probably admirable job, but to me, he didn't have any of the charm or humor that Harrison Ford did. And so I watched the whole movie imagining, you know, the real Han in my head in those scenes instead of that dude. But everyone else I thought was great. Um, and, you know, I, I don't know how much you want me to say at this point, but like, I, I just had one other major problem. Um, I mean, I can talk about any well, other aspect yeah, well, of the movie. Yeah, just why don't you just tell us quickly, what was your, your other issue? I think that for a movie that's supposed to tell us how Han and Chewie met and how that bond was formed, um, the scene where they're in the mine and Chewie is going to go off to save his his you know fellow Wookiees who he, he sees in there, um, and Han tosses him that like you know stick or whatever, staff that he tosses him, I felt like that was a little weak for what I thought was supposed to be a stronger bond. Like I wish that he would have tossed him the thing, moved on a bit, taken a pause and been like, Oh God, I guess I got to go help him. And then gone back and helped him free the Wookiees. And then that's kind of the bond. Cause I think that's the nature in my mind of that character is he, he's, he's definitely not a goody two shoes, but like, I feel like in the, in that moment, that's where, that's why Chewie follows him for the rest of his life pretty much because in that moment he chooses to risk his life to help Chewie to do something that matters to him. And I feel like that would have made it a so much stronger movie for me, but you know, I guess it, it, it still kind of works the way it is now. Well, yeah, yeah. I, I agree with that rush. I mean, well, I think that this movie works really well as a comedy and as the sort of like cliff cliff notes version of Han Solo's backstory. Um, but I think that it covers way too much stuff way too quickly to um, yeah. have any particular thing land with a lot of dramatic or emotional force. And so I think that if they were going to make it have more dramatic impact, they would need to focus it more on something. And so I think that, you know, and, and because it, I, I was really pretty confused about how much time was supposed to have been passing and how, uh, you know, how this, when this was in relation to other events. Cause so it starts out where um, Han and his girlfriend Kira are working for this um, sort of lo local crime boss who has this kind of group of kids sort of like pickpocket type thieves from what I gathered. 
And they seem to be kind of the oldest of the kids to me. That was my initial impression that they're like supposed to be 17 or something like that. Um, but then three years go by and then he's got the Millennium Falcon and he's going off to work for the job of the hut. Uh, and he's met Lando and he's met Chewie. And I thought all that stuff should have happened over like 20 years. And it felt like it happened really, 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 really fast. Yeah. yeah. I, I think you've put your finger on something there too, that it, as as much as so much of the, the movie felt like it was ticking boxes of, you want to know why Lando shot first? Do you want to know, do you want to see the card game where he won the Millennium Falcon? Do you want to see where the I love you line comes from? And all of these kinds of things that they, they meticulously went through and, and, you know, how he meets Chewie. They ignored the bigger questions. How does Han become the crusty, cynical guy that he becomes? Because as much as he's got this hard knock life at the beginning, he doesn't have that layer of weary cynicism that we see in the older Han Solo. We don't, we don't go toward that. We don't see any movement in that direction. Why does he fall for Leia the way that he does? Like some of the bigger questions, why, what, what is the essence of his bond with Chewie and where does that come from? And I don't think any of those bigger questions are, are addressed or if they are, they're not addressed in a satisfying way. Um, to go back to what Raj was saying about the, about the scene with Chewie, you, you don't really see anything on the screen that totally justifies why Chewie sticks with him through thick and thin. Mm-hmm. And so they, they tick all the little boxes, but they don't actually focus on any of the bigger boxes. Um, because I guess that's, I mean, this is by far the fluffiest Star Wars movie, I think I would say in terms no, of no pun intended, <laughs> <laughs> no pun intended, um, yeah. which, which is not necessarily a bad thing, but it's interesting that you would choose a canon character, a major character in the franchise to tell your fluffiest story as opposed to some spin-off peripheral Ocean's Eleven type story with a bunch of people we've never met. Yeah. You know, I, I think I, I see this a, a lot in in these epic blockbuster films where they try to cram an enormous amount of story into a really a short amount of time. And then you either get two things. You either get a film that's too long and too weighty and trying to do too much or or they cut <laughs> stuff. <Jedi>. And, <laughs> yeah, right. And then or, or they or they cut stuff and it's just like, well, that that was too fast and that was too easy. And that was just like checking a box. And I almost feel like, well, first of all, I, I know that they originally planned three uh, solo films. So I don't know if they're going to do that now, depending on the box office. But um, I, I feel like any one of those things that y- you mentioned, like how how Han becomes so cynical, uh, why does Chewie follow him uh, for life, uh, all these things... Um, could be entire films in themselves, right? Absolutely. So there's just so much room for that. And, yeah. you know, and, and I think as, as someone who's grown up with, with the character, you know, and, and I'm sure I'm not alone here, is like we bring so much of our own um, emotions and history w- with that. And so as we're watching this, we're like, oh, that, that's the Kessel Run, and oh, that's where he meets Chewie. And then it doesn't quite, it may not quite meet up you know, with our expectations of it. Yeah, and I think that's that's one of the mistakes in trying to do these prequels based around these huge characters. Like Han, you know, out of all the movies that they've announced focus on individual characters, like Han is the one that made the least sense to me. Um, you know, like if they do an Obi-Wan movie with Ewan McGregor, that'll make sense because we've seen Ewan McGregor in three movies as 
Obi-Wan and he still is the same guy, you know, even though he's not Alec Guinness, you know, we've kind of gotten used to that, I think, over the years. And if they do a Boba Fett movie, which they're, they seem to be planning, we don't have an attachment to the guy beneath the helmet in Boba Fett. I mean, I know that they established it in the prequels, but, you know, I don't think people have been thinking about Boba Fett's, you know, human persona for many years. And I feel like, you know, how many years are we have from Star Wars 77 to 2018 is 40 years, right? So, I mean people like me have had 40 years to kind of cement in their mind exactly what the character is about, what these little moments have been about. And like I said, I didn't need it to be explained to me because I had so many years to think to myself, oh, well, this is probably like this and this is probably like this. And I feel like they were, you know, maybe this is why the box office isn't so good because they run the risk of people comparing what they see on the screen to what they've imagined, like you said, Matt. And I think... It would have been so much better, I think, if they like I don't even mind if they focus on secondary characters like, you know, like you mentioned a heist movie, like how about a heist movie with Bosk and uh, IG-88 or, you know, characters like that that are kind of in the background. Um, on the other hand, I will say this Lando, who is definitely, I think, you know, steals this movie away from everyone else um, as Donald Glover, basically you know, we didn't get enough of Lando in those movies, I think. And so kind of filling in his background and kind of giving him a movie makes a lot of sense to me. And I also think, again, that character compared to Han in that movie had so much more charm, had so much more humor, had so much more, uh, you know, roguishness on the screen that I think Han's character suffered for it. So I think I, I, I feel like we had four movies with Han Solo in them. Like, let's, Let's give movies to characters. If you're going to give a, you know, if you're going to focus on a character from any of the previous movies, like pick ones that haven't had a lot of screen time. That, but two, to, to go back to what Matt was saying about cramming too much into the story, I didn't feel like they were telling too much story so much as the wrong story. I, I think they've moved too quickly. Like by the time that, um, and I don't know, Dave doesn't usually like it when we jump ahead, but. But by the time that the the movie is over, we're already moving on to the stage of Jabba the Hutt, which is a stage that we already know about from the original movies. So you have all this time period, and again, it's not clear how much time we're looking at, but we skip from, we get sort of five seconds of the period where Han and Kira are working for the crime caterpillar, and then you jump, you skip the entire time that he's in the Navy. I wanted to see yes, that. I wanted too. to see Han. I agree. Trying to learning to become a pilot, going up against the sort of the the norms and the expectations of the military, deciding it wasn't for him or it deciding he was not for them, and and instead you jump straight to the heist movie when you know that Han's entire future is the heist movie. I feel so you're like, not feeling yeah. filling in any gaps that we don't already know about. Yeah, and I feel like you know you were mentioning. Uh, Aaron about that we didn't see his his growth of cynicism. I mean that could have been a perfect place to do it because yep, yep. I, I actually really like those infantry scenes where like Han's like yeah I I was kicked out of the uh, flying school and and now I'm an infantryman and and they were definitely going for like a World War One trench feel yep. and then there's this great moment where Han's like where are the bad guys which I thought was like a little too on the nose but at the same time it's like he came to this revelation like. 
like, we're the invaders here, you know? And I wanted to see that arc. And yeah. I also felt like there was a, that was a perfect setup. It's like, you know, if we're, if we're echoing World War One and the horrors of World War One, we could show, like, Han in the trenches and, and, like, seeing, like, how ugly war is and then maybe coming out of that a little bit darker, a little bit more world-weary. Um, that, that, to me, you know, again, could have been an entire film. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, no, I would totally, I, I totally agree that what they should have done, I think, is have two movies. And one movie is about how Han starts out as a romantic and ends up as a cynic. And we see him in the Imperial Flight Academy. We see him being insubordinate. We see him and all the stuff with Kira and whatever. That's fine. You know, and we see him. The thing is, I always heard the story. I always heard. I don't know where I even got this, but the story I always heard about how Han met Chewbacca is that Han was an Imperial, you know, he's working as a stormtrooper or something. And he saw them, they were like mistreating Chewie and he just couldn't deal with it. And so he set Chewie free. And um, I like that story a lot better than what, what we got here. Um, yeah, I think we, that was in a book or a comic or something. Yeah. Can we, we can we... Wait, 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 wait. wait. And then, so we could have gotten that and then um, then Kira sort of ditches him or whatever. And now he's cynical. And all, and, and, and we, we see we, so we see the story of like him going from the kid up through his first big heist and it all goes wrong. And now he's cynical. And then maybe at the end, like he meets Lando or something. And then the next movie could be the Lando movie where, like, you know, now they have some, and we jump ahead some number of years, and now they kind of know each other, and they have some history together, and now it's about the Kessel Run and how Han ends up with the Millennium Falcon and, and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. They just don't leave themselves a lot of a lot of space to move, do they? Um, we, like I said, like, by the end, he knows Lando. He's best friends for life with Chewie. He's got the Millennium Falcon. He's already... Um, involved in the criminal underworld and he's going to meet Jabba the Hutt. In other words, he's basically the Han Solo we meet, except his personality is different. You know, I'm I'm pretty sure that if they make those two movies or what they were planning to do is basically have the next movie be he meets Jabba and he, he meets Greedo and, you know, starts working for him. And then, you know, the third movie is the one where he dumps his spice and then, you know, Jabba's mad at him in the beginning of Star Wars. Like, I, I feel like they're just picking these obvious moments. And I totally agree with both of you, all three of you about how, you know, I would have rather seen him struggle with being in the Imperial Navy. You know, I mean, he's learning valuable skills, but there's a cost there. And like, you know, he was in, you know, like you've said it already. I mean, basically we didn't see any of him in the Navy and then he's in the infantry for like two seconds before he talks his way out. And I don't, you know, I think that's a more interesting story, definitely, especially because it, 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 I don't know. I think it would, it would set up the character so much better. Not only does he get world weary, but he decides, well, you know, being on my own was terrible. Being with the empire is terrible. I'm just going to go do crime for the rest of the time because why not? You know, this universe yeah. sucks. And I think, you know, I think that was a huge missed opportunity. Um, for the character, yeah, and and maybe some of it is—I uh, hesitate to say this—but some of it is is not necessarily the skeleton of the story, but the details and maybe even the performances. And what I mean by that is, for the Han Solo that we see in the original films, you can tell that he's got this kind of romantic, heroic underlayer, but that but that it's buried beneath layers of cynicism. And so, like you said, Dave. Uh, 
you, you sort of sense that somewhere in his life he's he's made this journey from being naive and romantic, which a journey we all make to some extent, naive and romantic to to cynical. But so we needed to see in this movie, I think, we needed to see Han get his heart broken. And I don't mean that in necessarily the romantic sense, although that's one way of doing it. We we need to see his heart broken where there there's just somehow a betrayal of his worldview or a betrayal of um you know the people that he trusted most and they gesture in this direction and I think we're meant to feel that that it happened and meant to see it but the two betrayals that do occur in the film never really landed for me I don't know if that's just me but they you could see that they were trying to break Han's heart but I didn't buy it and I'm not quite sure why yeah. Well, because I think we didn't spend enough time with Kira and with Tobias Beckett. Yeah, you know, maybe that's it. You know, like like every like like I was saying, I think everything is just too fast. Um, and did anyone not think that Kira was going to betray him at the end? I mean, you know, it it seemed kind of written into the plot from the beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, I that's that's at least it, it just came as no surprise to me. I was waiting to figure out what her angle was because that just seemed like the kind of movie that this was. Um, well, yeah. this is a the the prequel problem is that we know that she, we've never heard of her before, so we know she either dies or goes off for some, you know, abandons him for some reason, you know. Oh, by the way, I will say that the whole um, Darth Maul thing came as a huge surprise to me. I mean, that was the one moment in this whole movie that I was like, "What is going on here?" But okay, um, interesting. Uh, but yeah, yeah, that also kind of didn't land for me. I I will say I guess I was like oh that's weird. <laughs> to, yeah, to me, actually, the Han. Rush, okay. since you brought up the Darth Maul thing. Let me just say, I mean, I I, I really really intensely disliked that, and I wasn't really he watched... cut in half? Did well, I miss yeah. something? Well, yeah. See, this is I had to go read up on this afterward, but it turns out that in one of the cartoons that they've done, he um, <laughs> it's so stupid. But you know, yeah, he got cut in half, but then he used the force to like survive and got a robot legs, and <laughs> he got it, spider legs. It's just yeah, I, and and like it, that's just dumb on its own. But then to bring that into this movie. For people who have no idea that any of that stuff happens in these cartoons, uh, I, I just, yeah, I, I, could, I, I really hated that. But, but okay, so sorry, Raj, go ahead. Well, I mean, we were talking about the, you know, the different ways these movies could work. And I was just thinking about how, you know, if you look at A New Hope, basically Han starts out as this world-weary, you know, as we mentioned, criminal, doesn't care about anything, doesn't believe in anything. And by the end of the movie, he's basically signed on with the rebellion to the point where in Empire, the only reason he leaves is because he is worried that somebody's going to try to kill him and he's trying to square away his his past at that point. And so to me, Han is a guy who's always been in search of a home. And the reason that he, you know, he's always with Chewie and he's always on the Millennium Falcon is because that's the only home that he's had throughout his entire life. So the idea of him growing up as this poor you know, orphan who's never had like security works well for me. Um, but you know, I want to see that kind of come through. I, I, I would have loved to see that come through here. And I guess they show it in the sense that, you know, he's trying to find a home with these other criminals and then that falls apart. Um, but like, I feel like to me, that's where his part of his world weariness comes from. You know, like he, he finally gets off Corellia and then decides, Oh, I'm going to sign up with the Navy and maybe that'll be my home. I'll be a pilot, whatever. And then that doesn't work out. And so I feel like that's basically, you know, what leads him on the path that, that comes to, you know, the first star Wars movie. And then, 
by the end of that, the rebels are like, hey, you know, you can have a home here. We actually appreciate you. We appreciate what you can do for us. And his, you know, whatever silent sleeping heart that's inside of him kind of says, hey, this could be pretty good. Um, and, you know, I, I, yeah, I don't know. That, that's wait, just wait, the wait, but so, so, Raj, did you not feel that this movie kind of undercut his character arc from A New Hope by having him go through sort of a mini version of it before that happens? I don't know. I mean, I, I didn't mind so much the whole, like, you know, very blatantly obvious thing where they, they're like, you're really a good guy underneath, you know, you just, uh, I, I mean, but it, I kind of feel like that's fine because I don't think he's a terrible person. Cause like I said, if you look at that one movie, he completely flips his whole thing just based on like one experience, you know, he, he's not constantly fighting against it. He pretty much by empires, like, I'm, I'm good. I'm, I'm working for you guys. I've accepted a, you know, military, um, position, you know, and by the third movie, he's like all in. So basically I feel like that didn't bother me. Um, I don't know that it undercut it. I just feel like I wanted more. I think it's like what you guys said. It's just too much packed in and it makes the journey seem non-significant because we never have a, a moment to sit with anything and he, the character never has a moment to sit with anything. Um, and I, I feel like at the end he was so brash and like, I'm going to go get this new job. And I feel like by the end he should be like, shit, I have a cool ship and I have this guy that I just sort of met a little bit a while ago, but like, I don't know what I'm doing still, you know? And I think, I think that was absent from, from that for me. Yeah. I, and I think everything you just said, and Dave, I personally do think it undercuts his arc because this goes back to what I, what I meant about having his heart broken. I completely agree with this, you know, so if we, if we buy and it totally fits with the Han Solo we meet in A New Hope, if we buy that he grew up an orphan um, and, you know, alone basically and didn't have a family or if he had one, it was, you know, his fellow orphans. He finally escapes that planet in a weird way that I don't understand, which maybe we could talk about in a minute, but he, he escapes the planet and then he's kind of in search for a place where he belongs. And so it would be, it would make so much sense to me if the first movie is this is Han in the Navy and they break his heart. Mm. It turns out to be a bankrupt institution. He wants nothing to do with it. You know, he finally felt like he belonged and, and let's face it, soldier cohesion, unit cohesion is a great way to, you know, for, for a guy like that, that would, that would very realistically feel like family. It would feel like order at last, a brotherhood and sisterhood that he could really be a part of. And then he finds out it's morally bankrupt and awful and it breaks his heart. Then he becomes a smuggler and he finds his crew and he spends his whole movie with his crew instead of, Tandy Newton making a, a, a really short and brilliant and totally irrelevant appearance in the movie. Criminally uh, underused. Criminally underused. And also whatever with the arms, his crew is destroyed in virtually the first scene. So he, he could have spent that whole movie with his crew. And then the betrayal at the end of this movie with Tobias, that lands because that's his brother in his yeah. new family and they break his heart again. And by the end of that second film, we really buy that, that Han doesn't think he has a place in the universe, except in the cockpit of the millennium Falcon. Then we buy it. Yeah. That, that'd be so much better. I, I think this is the issue that you get into with, with these like 
big franchise films where you have so much that's canon is like that there's this, you know, the producers are like, well, the fans are expecting this, this, and this, and we have to hit these, you know, five touchstones. And, and I feel like they just try to squeeze so much in there. Um, yeah, like, like Val. Uh, Tandy Newton, like, I was like, are you kidding me? Like, like, these, they're just like, she's just like, yeah, yeah, I'm gonna blow myself up. I I can't get out of this, you know? And I'm just like, what? Like, what kind of smuggler are you? What kind of outlaw are you? Like, none of the other other characters ever do this. And and I don't even think any of the films, do they? And Woody Harrelson is sad for like three seconds. For like three seconds. (laughs) Yeah. And, and that to me, that to me was was one of the places where the the, the film really faltered, um, and I think the reason why I enjoyed the rest of it was because so much happened that I actually forgot about Val for a while. But then, but then when I came back and thought about that, I was like, hmm, you know, it, like I know, um, you know, Woody Harrelson's character um, is supposed to be like this cold-hearted, you know, just smuggler, you know, kind of what Han aspires to be in a certain way, but it would be really interesting, an interesting parallel if, if he also had a, you know, a soft spot and we saw that and we saw him break down and cry and, and even like mourn for her, even if it, you know, like a few scenes later, if he stopped and like, I miss Val, you know, that like that would have, that would have really yeah. been kind of moving, but it was just, boom, no, she's gone next. Well, well, everything you guys are saying is making me wonder why is this not a TV series? Yeah. Because... Yeah, I mean, because the story they're telling needs way more time to be developed. Yeah. And also the nice thing about the Han Solo story, to my mind, is that it's not about like giant space battles or like Death Stars blowing up or giant lightsaber battles. Like you could do it on a more modest budget. All you need is some ships and boxes of, you know, valuables and like stuff like that. I mean, you could do, you know, it just seems like that would work a lot better to me. And then you could develop all these characters and the things w- things would feel a lot more real and have a lot more emotional weight. Now, may, maybe this is a, a, um, a rumor I heard that's not true, but is, isn't John Favreau doing a live action Star Wars? Yeah, movie? I think, I think that's true. Actually. Oh, it's live action. I for some yeah. reason assumed that it was animated. They're, they're, they've been trying to do live action stuff for a while. And now that ABC has its own kind of channel or yeah. streaming service i think that's what they're trying to use to kind of anchor it but you know it's what, funny like what the arc is gonna be i don't think anyone's mentioned it so far but it's funny because because dave you mentioned a series and it, it it kind of tied in with something i was thinking is that uh so indiana jones they had a young indiana jones tv show yeah. um which kind of i guess would be sort of a similar thing but also i was realizing just now the the parallel between you know, in Indiana Jones, the third movie, we see where he got the hat from. We see, you know, kind of he picked up a lot of these or a couple of these things from that kind of criminal guy that that he mm-hmm. is working against. And I felt like that's interesting because they had they set up Han here where he gets his gun and he gets his belt and everything from Tobias and you know, kind of like patterns himself a little bit on that guy as well, who turns out to also be a terrible person. Um, so I just was, it's just an odd parallel with Harrison Ford being in both of those kind of roles in, in some way, shape or form. Hmm. But, um, I, the other thing I just wanted to say really quickly is I agree with everything everyone's saying. I think the castle run itself 
because of its mythology, if you're gonna do something about the Kessel Run, it should have been its own movie. Like, that should have been the heist movie all on its own. Like you said, maybe he meets Lando in the first movie. The second movie, he's building his crew to, to do the Kessel Run, and that takes up the whole space because that was also really rushed. I didn't mind it so much, but, you know, the other thing that, that I think we haven't mentioned yet is the fact that they invented something, some new fuel that we've never heard of before that that became the MacGuffin for this whole movie. I mean, basically, yeah. he uses it to get off the planet. That's what they need to find. I It's never been mentioned before. I don't know if it'll be mentioned since, although probably someone will have to now, now that it's been invented. But it, it, it was a little bit odd to me because I thought you you couldn't just come up with something that they've used before. I don't know. It was weird. Something different, yeah. Um. Well, I mean, you know, for all that we're picking it apart, I, I did personally, and I think from the sounds of things, we all liked it um, well enough. I, I actually thought it was a lot of fun. Um, I wish it had been about not Han Solo, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. um, I think I would have enjoyed the movie more if that wasn't meant to be our sort of insight into Han becoming who he becomes, because it really, that's the area where it didn't do very well. Um, but there were a few scenes that I thought were strange and or downright problematic, um, or that just didn't work for me. Um, I didn't understand the escape scene very well. I didn't understand this uh, kind of airport that they go through with all these border guards to get off the off the planet. And the, I didn't, you know, of the many questions we needed answered about Han Solo, how he got his last name was so not on my list. Oh God. Yeah. And, and it was just, it was just so dumb and so bad. I mean, it's a minor thing, but it was just such a grown out loud moment for, for, I think everyone in the theater that I watched it in anyway, for all that the theater erupted in applause at the end. So definitely crowd pleaser, but that was, that was a funky moment. The, the the scene where he meets Chewbacca in the pit, I was mm -hmm. confused. Are we, we like, so it reminded me of the scene where uh, in, in Return of the Jedi, where Luke, I think it's supposed to remind us of that scene where he gets chucked into the pit by Jabba the Hutt and has to fight the monster. Um, and, you you know, he, he in part fights the monster with the bones of the, the, the slain. When Han gets thrown into the pit, the stormtroopers, well, the Imperial soldiers say something to the effect of we haven't fed him in days. So he's going to mm -hmm. be, you know, especially ravenous or whatever. And then Han sees the, the remnants of, uh, of a previous uh, prisoner. Are we supposed to think that Chewie ate that guy? Don't piss a Wookiee off. <laughs> oh, okay. But I, I can, I can totally buy that Chewie tore his arms out of his sockets, but did he eat that guy? Because I don't remember Wookiees being, you know, I mean, clearly they're, they're carnivores because those teeth, but I, it's been so long since I read the expanded universe books. I'm talking like 10 years plus. I don't remember the details of life on Kashyyyk, but I don't feel like they, they ate sentient beings. I don't know. Well, I mean, the, the way I see it is this, and I, like, I agree with you. That was like, what? They, they eat people, but <laughs> I mean, you know, they, the the empire enslaved his people they're starving him and like they're throwing people down there i mean i guess you so, got to yes. wonder like what kind of like what kind of people are they throwing down there because if they're enemies of the empire to be eaten by the wookiee then maybe they would be friends with the you know like okay you know so for you yes chewy ate that guy and he probably i, I think that's it. what they were implying <laughs> and and i i was like oh, okay but i like you 
I mean, aren't Wookiees known for their bad tempers and stuff? So, I mean, yeah, I mean, definitely. Maybe, may so. I don't know. It's, that's confusing. Yeah, that was a little weird, but that's one I, scene. I went with it. Like, like, you know, like, like Raj and others had said, like, I, it, it was, that was rushed, I, I thought. You know, there, <laughs> there was, there, there was, there could have been a, a better scene, uh, between the two of them where they first meet. Although, you know, I did kind of enjoy the shower scene. I like the show well, scene. Yeah, I, I liked funny. I liked the part where he says like I have some good friends. They're waiting for me right over there, and we, they're they're gonna wait for us. They're gonna pick us up and get us off that planet. We have to go over there to my friends. I, I, I there was stuff like that. I I mean I was laughing out loud through this yeah, whole movie. Yeah. I mean yeah no definitely, and it was funny. And and as much as I was both cringing and laughing when Han was speaking Wookie, <laughs> and I, I yeah, wondered I, how many times they had to film that without him just completely cutting up because I don't know how you get through that without cutting up a lot. Yeah, I mean, one of the, one of the things I, I noticed about this film was um, that its tone was definitely lighter. It didn't have like that gravitas, that like profundity that the other the other films had. It was just it was lighter. It was it was almost like Guardians of the Galaxy esque. Like there was a definitely to it, and and I really enjoyed that actually. Like uh, that the sort of going back to the you know Lucas said that he was inspired by the the Flash Gordon type adventures, and and I and I. I definitely got like if you mixed Flash Gordon with a western, that's what this film was, and and th- that that aspect of it really worked for me. Yeah, he yeah. reminded me actually more of of Malcolm Reynolds than he reminded me. Of, oh yeah, of uh, Han Solo in a lot of scenes, mm-hmm. um, you know, minus the rebellion thing. But the the scene that I really didn't understand was the slave revolt. I I was so confused about how we were supposed to feel about that scene. Because I I wasn't sure whether are we supposed to mm, this is a perennial issue I have with with Star Wars is this ambivalent relationship it seems to have with artificial intelligence and whether mm-hmm. they are or are not alive right yeah because you know we spend all this time with C three PO and and R two D two and I think we're supposed to feel and I certainly did feel as a child and again as an adult that they were alive they were people. In their own sense, they weren't machines, they weren't tools, but but they were people. And so I wasn't quite sure how we were supposed to respond to L3. Like, were we? I wasn't sure how Lando responded to her either, because sometimes he felt he seemed to care about her as though she were uh, a sentient being like himself, and at other times he seemed to treat her the way we treat Siri when the answer is vaguely amusing and it's cheeky in some way. And, and I wasn't quite sure, so that when we get to the scene of the slave revolt, and it's, it's quite a funny scene, but half the people that they're releasing, I mean, there's Wookiees down there, there's people down there to say nothing of all these droids that we don't really know how we're supposed to feel about. So I was kind of confused about that. On the one hand, I wondered if it was a kind of conscious, if it was a bit of a meta thing, like it was a wink about all the, about all the fandom complaining about social justice warriors and the Disney agenda and the PC agenda that's being pushed through star Wars and blah, blah. If this was kind of a wink in that direction, or if I'm overthinking it or what, but I just, I I was confused by all of it. (laughs) I think it's just more of a reflection of the contemporary times. Like there's a lot of talk of AI and sentience and especially in, in like, you know, recent films and TV, like, like Westworld and, and Blade Runner and stuff like that. Um, but I have to say that, um, the relationship between Lando and L3, like when when L3 died, 
that to me was was actually more moving than anything else in the in the film and and I think it's just cuz I I found their relationship like really fascinating and at the same like L3 just nailed it like I thought L3 was just such a like one you know was on screen for I don't know how long but was one of my favorite droids in in all of like the Star Wars stuff and and I think it was just because she just had so much personality she had so much life yeah. And yeah, I always I always felt that the the droids were were sentient and you know like um you know and in, in Empire, you know, um Chewbacca goes back to to rescue C3PO. So I I I mean I I think it's definitely you know there that that some people treat them as as equal but others see them as tools. So That makes sense to me, but then why is the slave revolt funny? <laughs> Yeah, Do you know I, what I'm I, saying? It's a bit off. Yeah, it's a good question. Um, yeah. I, I also know that the original directors, uh, before Ron Howard, uh, did a lot of comedy. So it could have just be that their particular taste that they're bringing to it, that they just yeah, want to... Yeah. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. I think it was the Sunny with the Chance of Meatballs guys that were originally in, in charge of I it. I love so. that movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, maybe that's it. It was an Ewok treatment of a Game of Thrones storyline, if I could put it that way. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I think the thing is that there's always been this in Star Wars is that and it's very explicit in the first movie that the robots are slaves. They have these like restraining bolts on them that can be used to give them electric shocks and basically yeah, torture yeah. them. And the bartender, when they go into the Mos Eisley Cantina, says, we don't serve droids mm-hmm. here. Get them out of here. And I mean, but the but then none of the heroes in the movie ever acknowledge that or like say oh maybe we should try to free the robots or something so it's it, you know you you know and i think in this movie i'm i thought they just thought wouldn't it be funny if there was a social justice robot who's like always advocating for freeing the robots that that would be really funny and it is it is and yeah it obviously raises deeper questions that this movie in no way like is, <laughs> is in, in any to position handle, to address yeah. um but I, I mean i don't i don't you know like like what 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 could they? I, I think like it's 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 okay for them to just have a funny thing about the droids in this movie and not like go into a whole sort of liberation. No, no, no. That's thing not. About, <laughs> it's not what I mean. Uh, but at all. I, yeah, I mean, I think I feel like that's more like what podcasts like this are for to talk about. Because <laughs> I, I don't think that this movie could have like possibly done anything or should have like serious or should have. That's not what I that. mean at all. It just it was a bit of a sweet and sour thing that I was confused about because on the one hand, so the, the scene starts out that it's all very funny that the droids are breaking out and it's funny, but then you have this that Chewbacca's devastated because his Wookiee, his Wookiee brethren are being mistreated in the basement. And that's not funny. And we keep pinging back and forth between these two things. And so that's what I found a little bit. I, I just kind of wish they'd picked one. So I'm, I'm not in any way advocating that. I think that would have been awkward and weird and wrong on so many levels. Yeah, but I, I feel like it, you know this—it's a movie called Star Wars, and war isn't really funny. But like a lot of the <laughs> the characters are like running around killing people. They've killed like five hundred people, and they're like cracking jokes. I mean, there's like some level. It's just a movie. And you can't take you can't analyze any of it too seriously, or it starts all falling apart. Mm-hmm. Now let's proceed to analyze it very seriously. <laughs> I mean, uh, that's kind of what I was going to say. Like, isn't that what we're here for? But anyway, the last thing I wanted to mention that I was confused about, and maybe people with better memory of, of the old, um, of the old details can, can help me figure this out. But the, 
the other space pirates, the the marauders, the raiders that are pitted against Tobias's crew that who are the the villains in that first heist scene, but it turn out to be nascent rebels or rebels in the in the last scene that that Han ends up sympathizing with. Are we meant to believe that they're the nucleus of the Rebel Alliance? Because that doesn't make any sense to me at all. I don't think they're the nucleus, but I think that that coaxium we're supposed to believe financed the original like um, money of the rebellion, or at least is a huge part of that. Hmm. It would have been nice if there, because because these this band of of this ragtag band of rebels um, has a very personal beef. Which makes sense, and it makes sense. And a rebellion in real life is is cobbled together from disparate groups that you know their grievances um, come out of different places, but they end up fighting against a common evil, and all of that makes sense. But if if this was supposed to be Han's like earliest brush up against the rebellion, I would have I would have liked to see some connection, however faint, with because I always thought that the rebellion grows out of you know guys like Senator Organa and the remnants of the old of the old Republican. Senate, um, and that's sort of the, the political uh, nexus of of the rebellion. How do those pieces come together? Or maybe they, maybe they intend to explore that in in a future film. But it felt like these guys are way out in the fringes of the outer galaxy, and they have a very specific beef because their village was attacked. And then you have this very this very centralized thing. Um, yeah. I, I- I wish they had just not mentioned the rebellion at all in this movie. Mm. I, I thought that I, I, I didn't think it should be in here. And I, I thought that again, like one of my pet peeves with prequels is where all the characters turn out to have been way more important in the past than you ever had any reason to believe they were and did all these, had all these like giant world shaking or like galaxy shaking. impacts. Yeah, that's, that's fair. Yeah. But I, I did like the fact that this film, um, it made the, the universe, the galaxy feel so big. Like I actually felt it. And I know that the, in the other films, you know, we have like hyperspace that, you know, oh, we can jump across the galaxy in, in 30 seconds. I actually felt again that, that we, we are in a huge galaxy with all these different species and all these different things going on. And, and that was the aspect of it that, that really drew me in one of the aspects. Mm. Mm-hmm. But, also, this is completely unrelated, but did you know L337, um, in like hacker speak, uh, is, is sometimes used as like, uh, like a, um, like a shorthand for the elite, like elite. Right. And so I, I was like, even... oh, that's a little like wink to hacker people. Oh. <laughs> elite? Yeah. Huh. Well, that's a yeah, bit like, ironic. That's a bit of an ironic name, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. For for a rebel. Well, I, I was just I I imagine that it was just like her kind of personality that she was just very sure of herself. Hmm. Well, it, it means it means more like cool or badass, not like the right. yeah, of yeah. society. Oh, right. I see. Uh-huh. But it also could be used like if you if you know you do something, uh, you know if you if you hack into a computer it's like you know you're elite level right exactly right right see i think of everything the way a political scientist does (laughs) (laughs) a failing of mine sorry (laughs) (laughs) um the what do people think about kira can we talk about kira 
I, I'm also confused by Kira. Um, I, I liked the character, but I, I had a very difficult time reconciling what we saw of Kira and what we were told about Kira. If that makes yeah, sense. Yeah, I agree with that. I agree with that because everyone's like, you don't know what she's done, but she, she didn't come off as, as conniving until the very end when she makes that, that play. Um, so I, I guess she's either really good at covering up her ambitions or they just didn't show them to us. Cause, um, which I think the latter, because obviously why would they want to keep that from the audience? Um, even though it's kept from Han, but, um, she seemed like she kept telling him that he was, this, you know, hero at heart, but she seemed to be like super nice all the time. Super nice all the time. And you don't, you, you don't see much of that conflict. There's, there's a little bit towards the end of where she appears to be conflicted, but there's not a lot of it. I do wonder just in brackets with Game of Thrones coming to an end, might she be a character featured in the live action show where they would get to, I mean, clearly they, they're showing, they wouldn't bother with the Darth Maul scene and they wouldn't bother leaving so much mysterious if they didn't intend to pick up that ball and play with it a little bit more, um, somewhere down the line. But I would have, I would have liked to understand a little bit better what her deal was. I think they left a little too much mystery there. Yeah, I, I yeah, totally I, agree with that. I, I found her sort of unengaging as a character. And I, I feel like, you know, Amelia Clark is so good in Game of Thrones at portraying this person who's sort of basically has good intentions, but is put in a position where she has to do all these horrible things and, and does that really well. And yeah, she she just seems sort of bland here. And I, I think that's just the, the writing. Like, like, again, it was yeah. just, you know, everything happened so fast. And she basically like tells him like, oh, I'm bad. I'm a bad person now. But I mean, yeah, you never really see it. I, the fact that she suddenly does martial arts came out of nowhere for me. Uh, yeah, it's just, again, the, 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 the whole thing was too rushed. They didn't give you anything to chew on there. And, and the, and the villain too. Um, what's his name again? Dryden Voss? Dryden Voss. What's his deal? I, I, it was a little bit jarring. I had just seen Avengers Infinity War and I just can't kind of deal with the Jarvis <laughs> voice being evil. It's just totally cognitive dissonance for me. But, um, yeah, I thought he did a pretty good job for a character that didn't have much to do. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't mind him. I thought he was good. I love Paul Bettany. He's one of my favorite actors. Yeah, I like he's him. Good. And, and, but yeah, like everything else in the movie, it was just really fast. Mm. Um, I don't know if you guys know about how he was, how the whole part had to be recast. I heard something about it, but what's the detail? Uh, so initially, um, the actor, uh, wait, I have his name here, um, but he's the guy from The Wire. Um, and which, which uh, guy? Which guy from The Wire? I can't see what. There's wait, a whole bunch of guys in the wire. <laughs> I have, wait, I have, oh, Michael K. Williams. Um, so he was originally Dryden Voss, and he was originally some sort of alien. I've heard some sort of like half uh, lion or something. Oh, CGI, um, I heard, right? Yeah. Um, but then I don't know if you guys know how extensively this had to be reshot. But Ron Howard, when Ron Howard came on, apparently they reshot seventy percent of the movie. Uh, so that basically like doubled the cost of the movie because they, they reshot almost all of it. Um, and so the, so he had already moved on to another project and he wasn't available for reshoots. So they had to just reshoot every single Dryden Foss scene with the, with Paul Bettany with a completely different actor. Uh, and they decided to make him human. I heard because they wanted a little bit of sexual tension between him and Kira. 
Um, although I have to also wonder at that point if they just didn't want to have to go through all the like <laughs> special effects shit at that point. They're just like, fuck it, let's just paint some see, I didn't, on Paul Bettany. I didn't see any sexual tension. It just felt like he was creepy, like owning her <laughs> kind of thing. Right. So, I mean, so, which works better, I think, than sexual tension. Although, oh, me, I don't know. It, I guess it depends on how they did it. But I like the weird lines in his face that seemed to get redder and his eyes would get red when he got mad. I thought that was a nice little touch. I loved his yacht, too. Yeah, it's got a weird floor plan, though. It does have a weird floor plan, but it it was just very cool. It's like, yeah, let's just park the yacht over here. We'll have a little cocktail party. Hey, you want to go to that other planet? Yeah, I heard they have a nice sunset. Let's go fly over there. No, you just, you just, you're just, everyone's in really good shape from walking up and down the stairs. Totally right. <laughs> oh, he's Omar from The Wire. Oh. I love that guy. Oh, that would have finished. He's great. He's like the best person on the wire, other than Idris Elba, obviously. Truth. Anyways, that's a sidebar. <laughs> um, but yeah, so 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 they reshot the whole thing, and sort of the the general take is that these guys, the the uh, Claudia with a chance of meatballs guys, uh, Phil Lord <laughs> and Christopher Miller, um, you know, would have they, they they wanted to make the movie kind of zanier and more out there. Um, and that Disney was kind of like, uh, this is not what we want. And that mm. Ron Howard was brought in to sort of to rein it in and, and, and make it a little less like wacky. Um, and so, so, so everyone, you know, knowing that is kind of like, oh, I would, the, the Phil Lord, Christopher Miller version would have been so much better. It wouldn't have been played everything so safe. Um, but yeah, Aaron, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, and then, and then people would have shit all over it. Um, I mean, one of the things I've, there's, there's no pleasing the Star Wars fandom in its entirety, of course. Um, but, you know, I think, I think, I mean, I don't know anything about what the film would have looked like before Ron Howard came on board, but I think it's interesting that, you know, we all agree that we enjoyed the film. And yet I personally, I'm not sure if I would, I'd probably see the sequel, but I wouldn't be like, I definitely need to see the sequel. Well, so it was and, satisfying and enough. It was like it was like a three star meal kind of thing. Like you'd go back to that restaurant, but you wouldn't be like making reservations for next month kind of thing. No, I totally agree with that. But yeah, and, and I'm not sure. I mean, it would have been interesting to see what they did. But my overall impression of this movie was not that it needed to be wackier. I thought it was yeah, like yeah, really wacky for me. And I, I would have like like I said, if anything, I thought it should have had more seriousness and more depth. Um, emotional depth to it. Yeah. I was actually sure you weren't going to like it, Dave. I was sure that you were going to say that it that it was too fluffy and superficial. Well, the thing is, I really shows love, what I know. That, no, but the thing is, I really love humorous science fiction, and I'm always like, oh, I want oh, more you? humorous science fiction. So, so yeah, I mean, so I, 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 like I said, I laughed through the whole thing. I mean, I loved it as an example of humorous science fiction. I actually think the ideal audience for this movie is someone who's never seen a Star Wars movie before. Yeah, because because yeah. I think it's a great movie and all the problems i have with it come from it being a star wars prequel basically um or it's a great comedy i should say yeah um i'd agree with that but you know they're not mutually exclusive and i do wish we had more examples of doing both well and i just i mean i keep going back to serenity um as as a great example of a movie that's full of laughs and is mostly it's mostly a space adventure but it has some heavy moments and it has some emotional resonance. And you, I think I still believe you can do both. Yeah, I think sometimes, uh, you know, a, a 
comedic film can catch you off guard when suddenly it goes in the opposite direction and you're not expecting it. Uh, it can hit deeper than than if you know if you're like, oh, okay, here we go. This is the typical plot arc. And they say that that a good sense of humor is a sign of intelligence, and and so why should it be so surprising that a funny movie can be intelligent? And I think too often we sacrifice um, enjoyment for grittiness and so-called realness, um, and it's just it's not really necessary. So I, I that's one of the things I've always appreciated about the Star for Star Wars franchise in general is that when they get it right. You do get little bits of both. Sometimes they don't get it right, um, but but you can you can get both. And so I would have. So for all that I enjoyed this movie, and and I don't have any issues with the humor and the lightness of it, I do think they could have fleshed it out a little more. Maybe if they'd had more time and not such a disrupted production overall. Because I, f- I feel like anyone who listened to my comments about the Force Awakens would would think that I would hate the stuff like. Which I did, like the stuff where Lando was looking down at the mine. And he's like, "Oh, mining! Don't want to get into that." Like, I, I hate all that kind of shit. But <laughs> I feel like I don't know. I, I feel like I've just got there. There've been there've been enough Star Wars movies now that I just I I don't give a shit as much as I used to. I mean, like you know, uh, there's a, there's definitely a, a point in time where probably I would have watched this movie and I would have been outraged. You know, I would have said, "Oh, that's not how I imagined Han Solo," and they turned it into a big joke when it's deadly serious and, you know, all this kind of stuff. But I don't know. I just, I don't care that much anymore. You know, I, I'm just, you know. Uh, Exhausted. They, 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 yeah. Well, they've, they've made enough Star Wars movies and like, I can be like, oh, well this, and, and this is something it was actually interesting because Matt London, um, when we reviewed Force Awakens, he said, you know, that like when it was just the original trilogy, there was just something mythical about Star Wars. And by making all these new movies so quickly, it was going to just turn it into like the Marvel universe where you're just like, oh, this one, it was better than, you know, better than Spider-Man, but not as good as Guardians of the Galaxy. And, and, and that's kind of where I am with it now. They're, they're just kind of movies now. And like some of them are mm. good movies and some of them are like, I don't like them so much. And some of them are still, I think, really good, but they don't, it's not like a religion to me the way that maybe it, it, it was when I was younger. Hmm. Hmm. But I, I mean, I haven't spent much time. Have you guys spent much time looking at sort of what the, what the fan reaction is? Because I mean, I tried to avoid, but it was very difficult, I think, for anyone, especially with a Twitter feed to avoid the, the reactions to The Last Jedi. And a lot of the criticisms of The Last Jedi are the sorts of things that you could, they're not criticisms that could easily be leveled at this film. And yet you look at the Rotten Tomatoes rating and, oh, I had to laugh speaking of just sidebar the, the, the critical consensus, you know, when you go to Rotten Tomatoes, there's that little blurb where somebody tries to uh, give a, a two or three sentence blurb about what people are saying about the film overall. And it says something like, it's a really enjoyable movie if Star Wars fans check their expectations at the door. And I was like, when has that ever happened? Star Wars fans (laughs) do not check their expectations at the door. Um, But anyway, to see that it looks like um, the reception among audiences is mixed, bordering on lukewarm, it kind of proves my thesis that there is, to me anyway, that there is no sort of no pleasing people with this franchise right now because everybody has so much attached to it 
emotionally and expectation wise and people feel such a sense of of possession bordering on entitlement about this franchise that you know the the criticisms that force awakens was too dark or sorry that the last jedi was too dark and um i mean there were lots of criticisms of varying stripes but but this 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 it was too dark and too bitter and not not enough hope in it i would be curious like how many of those same people are talking about this movie being too fluffy and too fun yeah i guess i'll just say aaron that i i you know i usually try to listen to a bunch of reviews and I, I Googled, um, you know, solo on, in YouTube and, and I scrolled through like a hundred videos that were basically like, ha ha, this movie is bombing at the box office. That's what you get. Kathleen Kennedy and your SJW bullshit. Fuck you. <laughs> and I, yeah. I, I just, I, I don't have, I just like, I can't even like, that's terrible. Um, and I th- yeah, go ahead, Rush. No, I, I mean, when I saw, I haven't read a lot of reviews. My friends had mixed reviews. Most of them are saying that was enjoyable. And some people said it was, I think the, the worst that someone said was that it was meh. So, which to me is worse than like, I have so many problems with this. It's like, eh. But, um, I saw the box office, you know, reports that Disney was disappointed. It came in under whatever. And to me, I mean, I took that, or I, I hope that that message is being interpreted as we don't really need these prequel movies. You know, we don't really need diving in deep to these backstories and, and um, at least for, like I said, these major characters and, you know, replacing actors and things like that. I mean, I think the, the, the subject matter has something to do with it, you know? And I think a lot of people did have expectation. A lot of people didn't want to see, you know, someone else in that role. Um, I don't know if that's why they didn't show up. I'm not really sure. Uh, but I also think that obviously the more movies they make, not all of them are going to be, you know, mega hits. Like when, when you were getting one every couple years and they're a part of the big trilogies, of, of course, everyone's going to go out and see where it's going. But I think now that they're adding in like a ton of different movies, I mean, I, and I kind of prefer it that way. Like, I want there to be the funny Star Wars movie that some people are like, eh, that's not for me, but I don't need to go see it. Or, you know, this is the, uh, gritty Boba Fett movie where, you know, it's, it's everyone against Boba Fett and there's no humor in the whole, th- or, you know, there's very little humor in the whole thing. Like, I will go see that movie, but I know that it's not for everyone. So, I mean, I think part of it is the changing paradigm that if you put out 20 movies in five years, you know, they're not all going to be for everyone and they're not not all going to be great but um well I kind three of, of them are young han solo like who thought that three young han solo movies would do force awakens box office numbers like that just doesn't make that just seems like total insanity to me yeah it doesn't yeah. make a lot of sense but you know i think it, it's a bit of it is i guess at this point too late but at this point, as much as I was excited about them continuing the story, I now kind of wish they hadn't. And not least because I think the, I, I, I find the, the, the fandom discussions quite depressing. And I think it's predictable to the extent that, I mean, those of us who are in this age bracket where, um, we literally grew up on this, you know, we were, we were babies or toddlers or little kids when this came out. And it's, it's been a huge, it was a huge part of our childhoods. It's been a huge part of our lives. Um, and a lot of us, I mean, I remember playing with my brother, my older brother, when we were kids, 
And we played some of these stories, um, the, these deleted scenes that we imagined in our heads, things that took place between A New Hope and Empire Strikes Back, or how we imagined things happened before those movies, or how we imagined they happened after those movies. And I think a huge part of the problem is that people have written so much of this lore consciously or unconsciously in their heads. Mm-hmm. And when the movies inevitably fail to reflect their version, they get completely insanely angry about it. And to some extent, that's predictable. And I almost wish what they would have done is, first of all, completely left the prequels, be- mostly because those were bad. But instead of continuing the story with Luke, Leia, and Han, which is interesting, it would have been more interesting in a certain way and maybe more satisfying if they'd fast forwarded a hundred years or 200 years into the future. And we could see sort of what the long-term legacy of those things were without, and these characters are still, they still loom large in mythology, but without actually touching on all those raw nerves. I don't know. Yeah, no, I agree. And and you, they would have had a lot more freedom to, to diverge from, you know, the standard plots. Like, we know Han has to get, go to Jabba the Hutt at some point. We know he's done the Kessel Run. We know, you know, he's got, you know, super hyperdrive and best navigation system and cool blaster. And it's like, well, we got to put that in somehow. And, and, and I feel as if like it, it sort of, uh, you know, shoehorns it into a, a narrow, uh, plot where, whereas if you, if you, if you started with something completely separate, you could, you could go in many different directions. Well, you just contrast this with the Marvel movies where there there's like 15 or 20 of them, whatever, and they're, but it's always moving forward. You know, it's it's introducing new characters and they join the story and it, it just keeps moving forward. It's not always going yeah. back and back yeah. and back again. And, you know, well, I mean, sorry, go ahead. Uh, now I forgot what I was going to say. Uh, I think I think what I was going to say is that, you know, two things. One is that. And you were, I think you were talking about just, I, I assumed you were talking about episodes like seven, eight, and nine, things like that. Mm-hmm. But I feel like there's still going to be people who complain like, oh, well, I don't want to see these guys. I want to know, you know, I want to know what happened to Han. I want to know what happened to Leia. And I think part of that was when I was a kid, we were promised another three movies that were <laughs> supposed to come afterwards. Right. <laughs> and I think a lot of people were expecting things like that. Um, but also it's funny, what you mentioned is kind of what Matt London had said back in the, when The Force Awakens came out and he was on that, that podcast. Uh, one about how they're just going to make a ton of movies now, but two, it, 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 it robs those heroes of kind of the, the victory that they earned in the movies, you know, like they came to the end of their story and now they deserve to kind of have that. And then, you know, if they were going to make a movie, then jump it ahead and not have it be like, hey, everything you did that succeeded, it really didn't succeed and it kind of made it worse, you know? So um, yeah. I think he would be, he would agree with you there. From, from a storytelling point of view, I I actually, I mean, anyway, we, we talked about this on the, on the Last Jedi. I actually... I think that's realistic and I, I think it's appropriate for, for a certain audience. Um, as much as it's bittersweet, mostly bitter to see what Luke has become, I, I do think it's, it's a logical progression of his character. It's a realistic progression of his character. Um, but the problem is that people don't want a progression of his character. And this, this goes back to what you were saying. As much as they have to color within the lines of the plot, I think more importantly for me, 
they need to color within the lines of a character because everyone wants those characters frozen in carbonite. They must not progress. They must not change. They have to be exactly who you've come to recognize, even though we're talking about 20 or 30 years later. Um, that's what people seem to want to see, which is too bad, um, because that wouldn't make any sense to me. If Luke, if, if the Luke we met in, in the force, in the, in, ugh, I keep mixing up the titles, in The Last Jedi, if he hadn't progressed from the Luke we left behind in, uh, uh, Return of the Jedi, as a storyteller, I would say they've done something wrong. But the movie going audience, totally, a lot of them totally rejected that story arc for Luke because it wasn't what they imagined and he wasn't the, 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 the sparkly hero that we left at the end of Return of the Jedi. So I think that for me is the bigger problem is that is the expectations of the characters and that we, we know how they talk and what their voices sound like and the types of jokes that they make and the way they stand and all this kind of stuff. Uh, and, and a lot of, in a lot of ways, the movies can't replicate that now because of course they can't. I'll just throw in, I thought this was an interesting observation, but for people criticizing um, Alden Ehrenreich, Ehrenreich's performance as Han Solo, in another podcast, I heard somebody say um, that it, if you watch Force Awakens, even Harrison Ford can't play Han Solo anymore. So uh, <laughs> you know, why, why, why should you expect anyone else to be able to? Well, and I read some like complete, some some, some long article about how um, Ewan McGregor, who, who's one of my favorites, um, Ewan McGregor apparently studied Alec Guinness's physical performance and, and his vocal performance, his cadence, and replicated it to perfection. I got to say, with all due respect, I never noticed that <laughs> at all. Can I say Donald Glover as Lando Calrissian just nailed he it? He did nail it, <laughs> yeah. yeah. He did. Um, but, but actually, um, Alden Ehrenreich, I thought, like, it took me a while to sort of get into the the feeling you know, just to get used to him as being Han, because like in my head, it's always been Harrison Ford. Um, once I did, I was I was fine. But there were a couple times where he did these expressions. And I was like, well, wow, that was a really a Harrison Ford expression. Like, I think he definitely um, had a certain like, there's a certain grin that he did in a certain way that he just like held his face. And I was like, yeah, that, that was pretty cool. Like, because I, I was like, I was with him. I was like, not not thinking of him as as Harrison Ford anymore, and then he would do an expression. I was like, oh yeah, Han, Han used to do that. Cool. I don't know if you picked up on that. Yeah, no, totally. And I I, I liked him. I mean, you know, yeah. I, I'm I'm not too picky when it comes to actors generally, but you know, I thought he did a good job. <laughs> he always says that. <laughs> uh, that's one of my endearing character quirks. Like, uh, <laughs> um, but yeah, but so I don't know. So like like. Like I said, I I, really, I enjoyed this. I thought it was funny, and I I still am not persuaded that we really needed a young Han Solo movie at all. But if they were going to do it, I wish they'd made two or a TV series and slowed it down a lot. And I I'm not at this point feeling any enormous amount of enthusiasm for a, a young Boba Fett movie or a young Obi Wan Kenobi movie. I don't know. Is, is anyone here like super excited for well? I, I just don't know why they have to make a young Boba Fett movie. Like, I feel like I would be way more interested. I know he dies at the end of Return of the Jedi, but they, they've reversed that in, I think, the books and the comics. So, like, I would love to see an old Boba Fett 
not old, but you know, like age Boba Fett movie, like a kind of Unforgiven with Boba Fett. Um, <laughs> That'd be awesome. You know, that, that's a movie I want to make. And, and James Mangold, if you're listening to this, you know, get in touch because I come cheap. But um, I, I think that, you know, and I think, again, if, if this box office reaction is because people don't have a taste as much for these kind of prequels, then like, why go back? I mean, it's a huge galaxy. And yeah. there's so many unexplored spaces. You know, we, we've been given tastes of so many different aspects of it which were great in the original trilogy because it, it lent it that kind of vastness that you needed to, to say this is this galaxy that's been around and stuff has been going on for a long period of time but if they go back and just start filling in the blanks like and then we have a young emperor like movie i mean like does anyone need those things <laughs> um i mean again there were there was so much fan service in this movie and i laughed at, at a lot of it and i i made all these noises i went with my girlfriend and i think she kept looking at me like what's going on but i'd be like oh look they're using the smuggling bay f- that they used in star wars like for the first time and then um you know when they show them the millennium falcon that doesn't have the notch in the middle and i'm like oh that's weird. It doesn't have the notch. And then by the end of the first movie, it has the notch. Like I, again, I didn't need that to be explained, but it still made me happy. Like these little moments that I was like, Oh, I recognize the significance of that little bit there. or I recognize the significance of that scene. But you know, again, the Han Solo name thing was completely ridiculous, especially because everyone has stupid names in these movies. I mean, if you really look at them closely, right. Um, well, it, was, it was all that guy. He gave everyone their names. <laughs> Uh, but also, you know, I didn't, I didn't need all of these boxes ticked, like, like you said, Aaron. So, um, I, I think that would be the exercise for any of these prequels. Like again, Obi-Wan, I think might be different because they have Ewan McGregor. I guess they can use him to kind of bridge the gap, but they've also done that with say the rebels cartoon TV show, you know, it filled in some stuff between, um, the prequels and the start of uh, A New Hope. And Rogue One was a kind of prequel that kind of filled in that stuff. So why not just go forward or have a whole movie that focuses on, you know, smugglers and bounty hunters for a change? You know, have, no have rebels, no... Noir on Coruscant. Yes. Yeah. Any, oh, oh my God. I, I mean, I, I'm, I've said I'm, this. Already. I've already bought my tickets for that. Let's, <laughs> let's go. I, I w- That'd be my jam for sure. Yeah. Although I do want a film noir. I want to write a film noir or a story. Um, and again, I'm available if, if anyone at Lucas or, or Del Rey wants me to write for you. Maybe guys. you should spell your name. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, I think that would be a little too desperate right now, but, um, <laughs> Actually, wait, Raj, let me just say before we get too far from James Mangold, if I have that name right, he yep. um, directed um, Logan, which was a yep. fantastic older uh, Wolverine movie. So and is... And that's why I think he would be perfect for like, you know, almost like, and, and if you, I don't know if you've seen the black and white Logan version, but like, how about like some crazy Boba Fett, you know, kind of in that Logan vein would be awesome. And but he's doing, isn't he, sorry, isn't he doing a Star Wars, isn't he signed on to do a Star Wars movie, James Mangold? Am I just imagining that? No, he's doing the Boba Fett movie. Boba Fett oh, movie. he is, okay. And, and yeah. that has to give you hope because, I mean, I think the review that I wrote of Logan, I recall saying that, that if like the, the Doctor Strange and the, and the rest of the MCU stuff was Beyonce, this was Johnny Cash. And I want to see the Johnny Cash Star Wars for sure. Yeah. And that, that noir on Coruscant is the first one that occurred to me, but, but yeah, a gritty sort of washed up Boba Fett. And if you can lightsaber a guy in half and he reappears, 
if Gandalf can fall into the abyss with the Balrog, they can make it work. He fell. He <laughs> fell in the stomach. He got pooped out the other end. I don't know what happened. No, no. no. As, as Raj is alluding to in the comics or whatever, he has his jetpack, so he can just sort of jet himself out. I feel like we would have noticed if that happened, but <laughs> but anyway, yeah. I mean, they can totally make it work, and and it would be so much more interesting to to pluck some of these peripheral characters for sure. But explore those other parts of the galaxy that we see and are all very shiny but very two dimensional to to flesh them out to three dimensions. By the way, you mentioned noir. I'm just going to say this because I think I said it on Twitter uh, out loud. But I want to write a story that that it is a little bit prequely, or at least goes back in time. But I want to write a story where, like, you know, maybe on Coruscant, like a world weary private investigator gets sucked into an investigation set against the backdrop of them kind of building the Death Star, and so. By the end, he's uncovered the fact that this, you know, murder or whatever it is took place because of this whole Death Star conspiracy that's going on. And of course, he can't do anything about it. And the Death Star is about to be um, completed. But I thought that that would be fun. That would be good. And and that kind of works when you have these um, franchises that you have multiple films. Uh, Dave's going to kill me. But this is what I didn't like about season one of The Expanse is you had the noir noir storyline. And then you had this completely separate storyline and separate on the screen. And they do interweave, but I thought the, the the tonal shifts between the two were jarring. And I would have liked them to be almost parallel, but not intersecting narratives more than they were. Yeah, the Expanse is coming back for season four. Haters can't get me down. That's all. <laughs> I'm not a hater. I loved season two. I'm really enjoying season three. But I... I but one of the issues I had with season one was that noir storyline just didn't seem to quite fit stylistically with the rest of the show. Anyway, it doesn't matter. <laughs> anyway, Raj, I like your idea. I mean, but but I, I don't know. I mean, Ryan, the other thing is Ryan Johnson is doing his uh, trilogy, and I, I like people will know, I, I loved The Last Jedi because it was doing something new and different and letting the past die. And daring. And, very uh, daring. And very Ooh. daring. And so, yeah, that's, that's really what I, I want to see rather than just sort of like filling in this, like, what was going on behind the camera in this scene and, you know, Empire Strikes Back or something like, who cares? (laughs) Well, I think that can be interesting if you do something like Wicked where, where, you know, everyone believes that X happened, but it was really Y and it just looked like X. And I don't think they're doing that here. I think they're just saying, no, it happened exactly, you know, there, there's some differences, but it pretty much, you know, everything went as, as you had imagined. Mm. All right, cool. So, uh, yeah, why don't we start wrapping this up? So how about a final thought? So, uh, Raj, final thought on Solo, a Star Wars story. Final thought is that the movie is fine. Um, I enjoyed watching it. Uh, I don't think we need a lot more prequels, with the exception that I now totally want a Lando movie. And I kind of want a Lando and Chewie movie because those were my two favorite characters in this whole movie. Um, but if not a Lando and Chewie movie, then definitely a Lando movie, uh, which I think has already been greenlit. So um, I, I am looking forward to that, despite everything I said about um, prequel movies. But of course, like I said, we haven't had enough real Lando in the um, films. And somebody I know was like, who should we cast as Lobot when he first meets Lobot? And I'm like, that's so amazing. I don't know. That seems more fun to me than a Han Chewie movie. But uh, overall, it was fine. I enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. Okay, Matt, final thought. Uh, I enjoyed it too. Um, I thought that 
it rushed a lot of things, and I really felt and feel that there's a lot more stories that we can tell in the in this universe, in the Star Wars universe. But I want them to take their time. So I'm actually really looking forward to the Favreau live action TV series because I think that with the right pacing and the and the right direction and writing, that um, it could be something really fantastic. So I'm I'm hoping that we'll go in in that direction in the future with this stuff instead of trying to cram these uh huge plots into these narrow little windows there but yeah it was a fun movie and Aaron final thought yeah fun movie i enjoyed it it's worth seeing it's worth seeing in the theater i would not be first in line for a sequel featuring the same characters um i am still on board with the with the sequels but yeah, I would I would like I would also like I would like for these millions and millions of dollars that are being spent on big budget sci-fi films also to explore some new properties that haven't been done to death because there's a lot of great stuff out there um and particularly when you have um an audience that's not that's not always as as receptive as it could be um and a message, you know, to Star Wars fans out there slow your roll just hmm. chill and enjoy the movie. <laughs> Uh, take it on its own terms and enjoy the movie. Um, I would like, I would like to see a little, I would like to see some movies that don't take place in the Star Wars universe and don't take place in the MCU. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, if you're going to spend $250 million on something, spend it on the expanse uh, and things like it. <laughs> Do you like how but, I teed that up for you? <laughs> yeah. But, but like, I mean, and I don't always agree with Rotten Tomatoes, but the, the thing Aaron mentioned where it said this is a, a good movie for newcomers and Star Wars fans who can check their expectations at the door, that is totally true. Uh, if you can check your expectations at the door, yeah. you just want to sort of sit back and laugh and have a good time and not take it too seriously, uh, this is a good time at the movies. Yep. And, uh, yeah, so I think we'll wrap things up there. So we've been speaking with Rajan Khanna, Aaron Linty, and Matthew Kressel. So thanks, everyone, so much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks, Steve. Thanks. And that was our panel. So big thanks again to Rajan Khanna, Aaron Lindsay, and Matthew Kressel for joining us on the show. Big thanks as well to everyone who's given us five stars on iTunes, including Ogre55 in Australia, who writes, It may take a few episodes to get used to the quirky nature of the host, guests, and the show, but then the pod tends to hook you, and you find yourself a loyal listener. David is a thinker, and I like his short, educated, sniping commentary on various topics. At the same time, he has this subtle sense of humor that leaves me in stitches sometimes. Five stars solid. I wish all older episodes from before they moved to Wired were still available. So big thanks again to Ogre55 for that great review. In terms of the older episodes, we did have an issue last month where io9 deleted all our old episodes off their server without telling us, so those episodes were temporarily missing from our feed. But as soon as one of our listeners let us know about that, we were able to get it fixed. So every episode of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy should be available now. If anyone is still having problems, let us know. And I also want to give a special thank you to Joseph Osborne, who just signed up this week to support us on Patreon. Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time or fixed monthly contribution, you can do that via PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com slash crowdfunding. And special thanks as well to Petra Austin Inkapool, who just signed up to make regular monthly payments via PayPal.
So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. All right, so that was our show. So thanks everyone for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkertley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.